Thank you, Luke. <clears throat> so we're in Luke chapter 5, as Luke told us. And we have this account of these friends lowering their friend through the roof. This is uh, people who were committed and they were bringing their friend to Jesus with an understanding that nothing, nothing was going to prevent them from bringing their friend into the presence of the Lord. Because they knew if they could bring their friend into the presence of Christ, he would sort everything out. Now it's interesting, as Luke pointed out, um, that it's first things first as far as Jesus is concerned, isn't it? Um, we look at people outwardly, and normally that's how we judge a person's needs, on what we see outwardly. Jesus, however, looks at the heart. And there are a lot of things going on inside of people that many of us know nothing about. Um, many people bear burdens that others know very little about. But the Lord does because he sees the heart. He meets us at our point of need. And he knows us better than we know ourselves. And so it's with that confidence, with that assurance that if we can just get into the presence of the Lord, that he will speak to us that which we need the most. And he brings restoration and forgiveness. He brings healing. He brings life and imparts that to us. So as they brought their friend, um, they laid him down right in front of Jesus. So can you imagine being in that house you're sitting there with this big crowd of people. There's lots of people outside. They're standing at the windows, standing at the door. People are getting, trying to get close enough to hear what Jesus is saying because this guy is speaking words that they have never heard before in a way which no one had ever spoken before. And as he spoke, um, things were changing inside. And so these friends, desperate to get to him, there's no way they're going to carry him through that. John and I were sitting in uh, Gitega in, in Rwanda one day. And uh, it's a big city, university town. Wouldn't be, not like what we're used to. But look in the rearview mirror as I'm sitting in the car. And there's uh, four guys. And they've got this stretcher. And this guy's laying on the stretcher. And they're running down the street carrying their friend on the stretcher. It's their ambulance service. <laughs> and when I looked at that, uh, those guys, I thought about this passage here. These guys uh, carrying this guy on the stretcher, uh, trotting down through the, the, the city streets on their way to the doctor. And so you can imagine these guys carrying this, this friend of theirs. And you're inside the house and... All of a sudden, there's some kind of commotion at the front, at the top, and you look up, and all this debris and stuff comes filtering down, and they open up this hole, and everybody kind of got to get out of the way because the air is filled with dust and dirt and all the stuff that's on the construction site. And they lower this guy down right in front of Jesus. And so 
They lower him down. Everybody's watching all this. What's going to happen? Jesus sees the faith and he looks at this man and he says, friend. It's a good thing to be called the friend of Jesus, isn't it? Friend, your sins are forgiven. Well, you know, it's one thing to have offended someone and someone says to you, I forgive you. That's not what Jesus is doing. What he's saying to this guy is, I'm forgiving your sins, whatever sins you've committed, and who's ever been hurt, or influenced, or damaged. I'm forgiving you all of that. So it's one thing to forgive someone if they've offended us. It's another thing when they've offended someone else. And you might think, well, that's kind of a cheap thing to say. You know, I've got no stake in this at all. I can come up to you and say, your sins are forgiven. But it wouldn't mean much, would it? <laughs> because who am I? But this was the point. And the Pharisees got it right. These teachers of the law began thinking to themselves. They weren't talking. It was what they, this thing was an offense to them. As soon as Jesus said it, they became offended. And they looked at him and they said in their minds, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? He's blaspheming God. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And that's the right question to ask. They got the question right. They got the answer wrong. And that's a good question. It's a question that you and I need to keep in mind as we go through our life and through our relationships with other people. Forgiveness can only come from God. He's the only source of that. That doesn't come from you and me. I know it doesn't come from me. So if there's forgiveness available, if forgiveness is being ministered, it's because of the presence of God. Jesus knew what they're thinking, and so he just, he brings it out. He knows the thoughts and intents of our heart. He knows the motives, why we do things. He knows if we're doing things because of our love for him, or to put on a show, or to manipulate other people. He knows what's going on in our hearts. He knows it better than we know ourselves. You know, sometimes I do things, and I don't know why I do them. Have you ever been in that experience? Uh, done that before? Why did I do that? Why did I say that? I knew better than that. I really didn't mean to, to uh, sound that way or come across in the way in which I did. But I did. So the Lord knows what's going on deep inside of us. And so that, uh, sometimes that can be rather intimidating. You know, there's no, no place that we can hide. There's no dark shadows within our hearts that he does not see. It can also be a source of great comfort and strength because he knows me as I really am. And yet his unconditional love, he gives anyway. 
That's the miracle. John put it this way in 1 John. This is love. Not that we love God, but that God loved us. We love God. We owe him everything. Everything. God loves us. That's the miracle. So Jesus knew what was in their heart and he says, why are you thinking these things? What's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? Because we're so bound in the physical, in the here and now. And we think that's where everything revolves around and it does not. It does not. So I was reading a book about uh, warfare and uh, the context in this particular book was um, in the middle of World War II. And the author was writing and he was saying, you know, um, the death and the destruction that takes place in warfare is not so unusual after all. Because if you stop and think about it, everybody's going to die. We're all going to die sooner or later, one way or another. What war does is it concentrates, it speeds things up, uh, and it makes us more aware how vulnerable we really are and how precious life is. That part is not always a, a bad thing, is it? How vulnerable we are, how precious life is. So Jesus, first things first. It's much easier to heal the body than to cleanse the sin. God in his grace and mercy has given gifts and abilities, um, discoveries, resources to enable us to help one another in some of these areas on the physical side on the mental side, on the emotional side. But to forgive sin is beyond any of us. That's an act of God. And that's what Jesus is saying. So they had the question right. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And that's important because when we stop and think about it, God is the one who created us. He created everything around us. He created every person around us. So if we have a problem with the other person, the real problem is with God. David understood that. David was a great man of God. He was also a great, great sinner. He had, at the time that he committed his sin with Bathsheba, he had about six wives plus concubines but he decides he needed somebody else's wife and the man that he chose or, or the woman that he chose was married to a man who was a Hittite mercenary soldier but this man had a real heart for God Uriah did and he was intensely loyal to Israel, to God, and to David personally. This man was more loyal to David than some of David's own sons. Uriah was a faithful man. 
But because he wanted his wife, David had him killed. David, man after God's own heart. Um, so he had him killed and took her as his own and um, thought nobody would see or care. He's the king. Absolute ruler by the grace of God. And he knew it. And this is one of the few times that he began to act like it. And so he was in the process of transforming from David into Saul. And God confronted him. God had sent Samuel, you remember, to confront Saul, his predecessor. And Saul didn't want to hear it. God sends Nathan to David to confront him. And David heard it. And so he comes and he prays in Psalm 51. It's a tremendous psalm of, of asking, seeking, pleading with God for cleansing and forgiveness. Blot out my transgression. Wash away my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. He's using three different words here. All of my transgressions, my sin, my iniquity. He uses them over and over in this psalm. Notice what he says in verse 4. Now he's committed murder. He's committed adultery. He's, uh, he's lied. He's covered it up. He's abused his authority and power. He's taken the gifts of God and used them for sinful things which God never intended him to do. And this is what he says. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David understood. The sin against Uriah was against God first. The sin against Bathsheba was first of all a sin against God because it was a sin against the Spirit of God that was in his heart and life. David got it right. It's not a novel idea for him. In Leviticus chapter 6, verse 1, The Lord said to Moses, If anyone sins and is unfaithful to the Lord by deceiving his neighbor about something entrusted to him. Did you get that? If anyone sins against your neighbor by being unfaithful to the Lord... The unfaithfulness starts with God. And then in the book of Numbers, he makes it even clearer because he's got some specific things that he's talking about there. But in Numbers chapter 5, verse 5, the Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, When a man or woman wrongs another in any way, and so is unfaithful to the Lord, that person is guilty and must confess the sin he's committed. He must make full restitution for his wrong, add one-fifth to it, and give it all to the person he has wronged. Pretty powerful stuff. If a man or a woman offends someone else in any way, therefore being unfaithful to the Lord, it's against God that all sins are committed, first of all. So he's right. The Pharisees were right. Only God can forgive sin because it has to start there. 
If we try to start with the forgiveness of the other person and then work our way up to God, we will never get there and we will never forgive anybody. Not from the heart. Not from the heart. We can say the words. We can kind of plaster things over and try to get on with it. But until we get it right with God first, uh, it's not going to be effective. And it won't last. Jesus responds as if all the sins were against himself. And so that's why he has the authority as the one who alone can forgive sins. Now that's part of God's unconditional love. That's his grace to you and for me. They caught a woman in John chapter 8 in adultery. Caught her in the very act of adultery. And they bring her before Jesus. They didn't care about the sin. They didn't care about the man. They really didn't care about this woman. These were the moral police and they caught somebody doing wrong and they're going to nail him and call that person to account. And so they drag this woman publicly in front of Jesus. Throw her at his feet. We caught this woman in the very act of adultery. Well, that's pretty clear. If you caught them in the very act, where's the man? Because the issue wasn't the sin or that particular sin. The issue was trying to trick Jesus into making a statement that would make him look bad in front of somebody. <laughs> so the motive of their heart had nothing to do with uh, family values or anything else. They were just concerned about condemning somebody and using that as an opportunity to attack Jesus. And they bring her and they said, the law says we're supposed to stone her. What do you say? And so all of these men were there, uh, the big stones, the ones that you stone people to death with, are very much available. And you remember, Jesus just looked at them, didn't say a word, and then he knelt down on the ground and starts scribbling something in the dirt. Well, that was rude. <laughs> so they're, pu they're pushing him. Come on, what do you say? So Jesus stands up and he looks at them and he says, you who are without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Now when we think about condemning somebody else or hanging on to an offense, we need to remember John 8, 7. If you're sinless, then you can throw stones. And it's instructive, John reports, beginning at the eldest, presumably the one who is most wise. <laughs> All of a sudden you hear thunk, 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 people dropping their stones <laughs> and walking away. In Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 13 and 14, God speaking through the prophet about a similar issues has this to say. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. 
Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved. For you are the one I praise. That's what was taking place in that building in Luke chapter 5. Looking to the Lord. With the woman in adultery, these men had turned away from God. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been doing what they were doing. They wouldn't have been trying to attack God's son. They wouldn't be willing to sacrifice this woman's life to make a point against him. How cheaply they valued this woman's life. Paul tells us that this is the whole point of Jesus coming. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 17, he says, If Christ has not risen from the dead, our faith is valueless. We are still in our sin. So Jesus came. He's going to die on the cross. He's going to rise again for this paralyzed man, for this woman caught in the very act of adultery. And it's because of what he is taking upon himself that he has the authority to bring forgiveness of sin. And the resurrection is good news for us because what that really means is your sins and mine have genuinely, totally, in the eyes of God, been forgiven. And we are free. We are free. Paul understands this. He says it in the first chapter of Ephesians. Also, he says it again in the first chapter of Colossians. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. And then again in Colossians, chapter 1, verse 14. For he rescued us from the dominion of darkness, brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So Paul is telling us redemption for you and me, what that means is our sins have been forgiven. And John tells us as we are all aware of, if we confess our sins, Christ himself is faithful and just to cleanse us and to forgive us. So only God can forgive sins. Did you ever pray the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And he didn't just stop there. It said Matthew 6. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Forgive us our debts, our trespasses, as we also have forgiven our debtors. 
Lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. He's not through. In chapter 18 of Matthew's Gospel, Peter has a problem. Somebody has wronged him. And so he comes to Jesus and he asked him, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Seven? So Peter says, how often do I have to sin? Uh, do I have to forgive? to forgive this one who's offended me, who sinned against me. How often? And Jesus tells him this story, and it's a parable about this king who is settling accounts. And you know this story. He's got one who owed him a, a, a large sum, and he's going to sell him and his family into slavery to pay that debt. And the man pleads with him for mercy. And so the man in his mercy forgives him that large debt. Well, he goes out, there's a fellow servant who owes him a couple of bucks, and the guy doesn't have it. So he grabs him by the throat, and he's got him, and he's going to make him pay. Been forgiven all of that debt? So they go back, the servants see this, they go back, and they tell the Lord. So the, verse 32 of chapter 18 the master called the servant, you wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, the master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. And that's not within us, is it? Because the Pharisees were right. Only God can forgive sins. So Peter, um, how many times should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? The question should be, Peter, how many times do you want God to forgive you? It's asking the wrong question. How many times do you want God to forgive you. That's how many times you need to forgive your brother. Have you ever prayed God to forgive you of a sin? And then later on, sometime later, you have to say that same prayer over the same sin? And then sometime later, it's the same prayer over the same sin? That's what exactly what Peter is talking about here. And if we can come before the Lord and ask Him to help us, to be patient with us, to change us, to have mercy on us time and time and time again, why is it that we find it so hard to extend that same grace to each other? It's only possible to be able to do that if we hear what Jesus has to say in the Gospel of John, chapter 20. 
Only God can forgive sin. In John 20, and this is important because he's not just talking to Peter now. He's talking to all of his disciples. John chapter 20, verse 21. This is after the resurrection. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. Wow. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. In order to forgive, you have to receive the Holy Spirit. Once they receive the Holy Spirit, if you forgive someone their sins, they're forgiven. If you don't, they aren't. God is taking us as His children, made in the image and likeness of God, inviting us to participate in His divine nature. And it's Peter who's going to be telling us that in Second Peter chapter 1. Because of God's grace, he makes it possible for us to participate in his divine nature. What does God do when people sin against him? He forgives them. Now, his sons and daughters, he's calling us to participate in what he is doing. If we are his children, we need to receive him into our heart, forgiving them through us. To participate Becoming sons and daughters of God in truth. Being his instruments of forgiveness, channels, setting people free. And that's what he offers to us this morning. Three times in scripture. Proverbs 10, verse 12. 1 Peter 4, verse 8. James 5, Verses 19 and 20 says the same thing. In closing this morning, I want to read the passage from James 5. Verses 19 and 20. James is writing to the church. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. This is not a cover-up. This is the sins being cleansed, covered over by the blood of Christ that alone can cleanse and set us free. And he is inviting the church to be instruments of that grace. Because the presence of Christ is in his people. Christ in you. That's our hope. And the only hope of glory that we have. And so it's Christ in us. Who does for the paralyzed man. Who does for the woman taken in adultery. Who does for you and for me. Your sins have been forgiven. Through the blood of Jesus Christ. We can't. Give it if we haven't received it. And if you have 
a hard time forgiving someone else, you haven't understood God has forgiven your sins. Freely you have received, freely give. Let's pray. So Lord, as your sinful people, we come before you, confessing our need, confessing our inability to do what you've asked us to do. And so in our weakness and our frailty and our sin, we come before you once again and we pray, Father, work that cleansing deep within us and set us free. Help us, Lord, to look to you, to receive from you what only you can give. That forgiveness that then not only fills us, but flows out through us to forgive those around us. Help us, Lord, to be your sons and daughters today. In Jesus' name, amen. All of this is possible because of the love of Jesus Christ, which he expressed. It's an unconditional love. Uh, Paul tells us it's that while we were yet sinners, while we're still enemies of God, alienated from him and separated from him, it's that point that Jesus died for us. Uh, taking away the barriers and drawing us into his presence. So we have communion every Sunday in our church, but it's the Hopefully, it's, it's the communion that we share with the presence of Christ. We do this in remembrance of Him, and He is the one who gives the invitation. So we have open communion. Everyone is welcome here. Um, we remember that it was sinful men in the upper room that were going to betray Him that night. These were sinful men, and Jesus invited them and participated in communion. And so nothing's changed. He invites us with our weaknesses, our frailties, our faults, um, with our joys, with our strengths, with the blessings. He invites us into his presence to commune with him and he with us, to minister to us that which we need at the deepest level. And when our sins are set free, then it has all kinds of consequences in our bodies, in our minds, in our emotions, in our relationships with other people. Because it's from inside that these things come. And so he invites us all to come. Um, but it's for those who want to come. So don't feel pressured in any way. If you, we're just wanting you to know if you want to participate this morning, you are more than welcome at this table. We all come because on the night that he was betrayed... Jesus took bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke the bread, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, this is my body. It's broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took the cup. After he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. It's for the forgiveness of sins. It's for the forgiveness of sins. Yours, mine, and anybody who has harmed me or I perceived has upset me in any way. It's for their cleansing as much as for mine. And he invites us to come 
and partake of the only bread, the only food that can truly give life, to drink from the only cup that can fully restore and cleanse and give us a new start. And he invites us to come this morning. So will those who are serving communion please come forward. We also will have people who are willing to pray with anyone who has a need this morning that would like prayer. There will be people standing right over here in this corner that would be willing to pray whatever the need. Body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, preserve your soul and body in their everlasting life. Take this in remembrance that Christ died for you. Feed on him in your heart by faith with thanksgiving. Thank you. Let's continue in prayer.